0: All right, hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, let me talk for a second about that video you just saw. Uh, this summer, we got a couple of opportunities to help you take your next step following Jesus. We're so big on that around here. I want to help you take your next step following Jesus. Here's a couple we have this summer. One we're calling Summer in the Psalms. What we're going to do is we're going to take 12 weeks and each week, and I would encourage you to do this with like one or two other people, just identify somebody and say, hey, we're in this together, right? For 12 weeks, each week you'll take one psalm, and every day that week, you'll just read that psalm again and again each day. All right, same psalm each day for a week. Right now, man, what am I learning about God? What does God teach me also about myself, how I relate to Him and His world? Y'all, I've been doing this for years, uh, doing it for years. Every single week, I take a psalm this week, Psalm 121. Well, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And that, and for I read it every single day that it forms the way that I walk with God and we're doing it right now because we've got this time where we're in the book of second Samuel learning about the life of David. Well, David wrote like half the Psalms. All right. So we're, what we're doing is we're looking and seeing how David was processing and dealing with the events of his life with the Lord. These are great prayers you can pray, everything else. So I would encourage you to jump in with us in our summer in the Psalms. Again, grab a couple of people and meet up and talk about what you're learning. The other opportunity I want to tell you about that's just helping you take your next step. Some of y'all are like, all right, I want a real challenge. That's great, but I want the real challenge. Like you're the people that are always your first time skiing. You're like, where's the double black diamond? I want to go down that, right? All right, if that's you, uh, there's something that we're doing this summer called a disciple making team. All right. This probably is the it's a 10 week intensive. It's probably the most impactful short term thing that we do in our church. All right. I mean, it will change your life. That is not exaggeration at all. Okay. Uh, you'll find out more about it at the end of our service. But if you're like, man, give me what do the Navy SEALs do? That's what I want to do. uh, Head church kind of thing. I'm telling you. It'll wreck you in a really good way. Uh, we don't have room for a lot of people. We got room for some, and would encourage you to jump in if you want to do that. All right. With that said, let's jump into our passage. We're going to be over in Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter six today. Our main guy, David, he's going to go on what I can only call a worship journey, and it's all going to happen in one chapter, and it's going to end up with him dancing. With all of his might in the middle of the street, in his underwear, <laughs> completely sober. All right. That's what we're going to see. And I really think God has a word for mercy, church, in this that I am so excited about. Because I've observed these past few years, being your pastor, that among our people are a wide, just there's a wide array of backgrounds when it comes to church and faith, and in particular, when it comes to a corporate worship gathering, which is what we're going to see in the text, we get people from all over the place. Some of you, you come from more um, subdued backgrounds when it comes to corporate worship, more liturgical and reflective in nature, like you know, a Presbyterian background or an Anglican or Methodist, or something like that. You put all those groupings together and you call that white people. Okay. That's maybe that's, uh, listen, I say that. Fondly, of course, that actually is. If, if that resonates, you're a little more reflective in your posture of worship, not a lot of movement, visible expressiveness. That was my background growing up in church. I'll never forget the first time I'm sitting in a, it's during the sermon part and the guy's preaching and a woman, two rows, older woman, two rows in front of me, raises her hand. And I'm like, I didn't know what to do with that. I had several thoughts. First of all, I didn't know we could ask questions during the sermon. I got a lot of questions. I didn't know that was an option, Right. And then as as it goes on, somebody tells me, no, no, actually what's, and I couldn't figure out why the pastor wouldn't call on her too. It was like, you know, I want to know. Um, What I realized in that is, no, that's like a a visible, an amen. That truth resonates with me and I want to testify to it kind of thing. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that was a thing, right? So if that's you, more subdued, reflective background, man, That resonates with me. And I hope what I'm sharing with you, what I'm sharing with you today wrecked me and then changed me in a really good way. Hope it does the same for you. Um, Others of you come from more expressive backgrounds. Maybe it's a Pentecostal, Church of God, some strains of non-denomination. And for you, you know, a worship service hadn't even really started until somebody fell out, right? That's when it got started. As spirits here, now we can move. You know what I mean? Look, I see the tension of all of that being here in our church week in, week out. Those of you from more subdued backgrounds, you're looking at those energetic worshipers and you're like, y'all are weird. And maybe you're even questioning their sincerity. And then you got more energetic worshipers that are looking around at the others and going, y'all know Jesus rose again, right? Because you're acting like you're still at a funeral and he's alive, you know? And then here's what I love the most. There are some of you that have, mercy's your first church. You've never been in church before. And you're like, all y'all are weird. I don't know why. Why? Why do we sing? That's a weird thing. Okay, so I hope we get to explain for everybody. I love that our church is this mixture of people from so many different backgrounds. We can learn from one another. More importantly, what we offer to Charlotte is a visible picture of the unity the gospel brings. That's really good. And I think God has something for everybody in this text, no matter your background. I hope, I've been praying that some of you will experience a more breakthrough and change in your approach to worshiping God. Um, what you'll find is that the more subdued, reflective people, there's there's something, there's a right element in there. And the more expressive, there's a right element in there too. And both are partly wrong as well. And all of this and all of this, my hope is to help you see God rightly through this chapter. And I just got a sense in order to get there, I'm probably going to offend most of you over the course of the sermon, particularly if you have a church background. So in those moments where you feel offended, just remember it's God's word. Just take it up with him. All right. Here, I do want to give you out front, main idea of the message. Okay. Here's the main idea. Like what I hope you leave with. It's actually also a call to action. And here it is. I want to call you today because I think God calls us from this passage to worship God with undignified reverence because he's your only audience and he's worthy. He's really your only audience and he's worthy. That's going to be the spirit of worship laid out in 2 Samuel 6. A high, high value on reverence, on the holiness of God and how it should impact everything we do. Not just how we approach corporate worship, but all of life. You should not leave today without a fresh awareness of the holiness of God. And at the same time, hopefully you'll be challenged in what the outward expression of your reverence looks like. But you've got to understand, I'm going to call you to something that is not simply behavior modification. We're going to deal with the heart. That's what we do around here. My hope is to show you God and then help set you free to worship him in a way that will actually be good for your soul. Because maybe without realizing it, your approach to worship has been a spiritual mask for your own pride. Whether that's you waving your hands and, and shouting or being completely expressionless Maybe what's really been happening is you've been worshiping for an audience of people in the room, both on Sunday and in the rest of your life. Your audience has been people and not God. So you want to look a certain way. You want to be viewed a certain way. That's what we're going to go after because that's at the heart of all we'll see. So if you feel yourself bristling up, we're just going to look behind the bristles a little bit and see that what you might be believing may not line up with God's word. The goal is not behavior modification. It's heart change. And I promise you, hearts changed by God in response to the great news of the gospel will worship in a way that lines up with his word. Okay, I promise that. So let's go after. We'll start in verse two. Second Samuel six. Y'all ready? Yeah. yeah, here we go. He, David, and all his troops, let me stop right there. All right, listen, um, we'll go faster, I promise. But let me, I've been thinking about this. Uh, Not in the notes, but he and all his troops. I want to go ahead and address the men in the room, uh, both of our campuses who think that um, worshiping with a lot of expression, or let me just say this, showing any kind of emotion is um, a sign of weakness. Um, That showing emotion is for uh, the women to do or something like that. Again, I, I want to address that if that's you. And I just want you to see here, who it is that's going to be dancing in his underwear before the Lord with all his might. It's the guy that commands 30,000 troops. He's a military general and warrior who cut off the head of a giant, walked it back into a palace and dropped it in front of the current King. So for those of you that have that kind of view of manliness, which I actually think is not the Bible's view of manliness, but if you carry that around, that you're to be macho and strong and not show emotion, you are not as that kind of manly as David. You're just not, you've never done any of that. And yet you're gonna see him worship in a way that might challenge the way you have been expressing emotion, okay? All right, let's keep going. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baale Judah. The ark bears the name. Love that, it pauses right there, bears the name. The name of the Lord of armies who's enthroned between the cherubim. A little bit of context for you, you kind of newer to church, uh, newer to us. The ark, back when Israel left Egypt, God said, all right, I want you to build a big wooden box overlaid with gold on the outside and on the inside, that was going to be the place where his presence would dwell among them. That's a big deal. This is where God's presence would dwell. On top of the box, there were these two angels whose wings were facing each other and they were facing each other and coming together over a thing called the mercy seat. The mercy seat at the top of the, on the top of that ark between those two wings is going to be very important for us today. The ark was originally placed in the center of God's people in a tent they called the tabernacle. And it was inside of a couple of veils, so to speak. There are a couple of curtains you had to go by to get to the Holy of Holies. And it was the only piece of furniture in that room. One priest could go in there one time a year. He would take blood from a sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat between those two angels signifying that God would one day provide a sacrifice for sin. This was a temporary atonement because they would have to do it again the next year. One day God will provide a permanent atonement. Inside of the box, inside of the ark was Aaron's rod that symbolized God's power. There was some manna that symbolized God's provision. And there were the 10 commandments symbolizing God's law. In short, this was the symbolic presence of God. Even more than that, it was the presence of God. It was the most important thing in all of Israel. Now, the problem is you, hear, you read right here, David's going to get it. Well, that's because if you have been with us way back in 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines defeated the Israelites and took it, which was a huge mistake. So they take the Ark, they take it to their temple, and there God wreaks all kinds of havoc on the Philistines. He decapitates their God, the God of Dagon. is an awesome moment. And then if that wasn't enough, he gives all the Philistines tumors, and then he causes mice to overrun the city. So the Philistines are like, this is not good. And the Philistines in the capital city send it to a neighboring city, which was not cool, right? And then God does the same thing there. They send it to a couple more cities, same things happen. And they're like, we got to get this thing out of here. So literally what they do is they take the ark, they put it on a cart, tie it to two cows. And they're like, well, we got to get this thing. But before we send it away, we need like a, I'm sorry gift to the Israelite gods. So they create golden tumors and golden mice, little idols and toss those in the ark. And then the cows just start walking away and they're like, thank goodness, you know, it's gone. Well, the oxen go to an Israelite guy's house named Shemesh. All right. So now Shemesh has the ark, puts it in his house. But then some people in Shemesh's house open the lid of the ark. And anybody who has seen Raiders of the Lost Ark knows what happened to them. All right. They did. They all die. And so Shemesh is like, got to get out of my house. Guy in the next town over, Abinadab, he takes it, puts it in a closet, shuts the door, big old keep out sign, he's on it. And that's where the ark sits for like 20 years. In a closet, in this dude's house where nobody touches it. That's 1 Samuel 5. Well, now David is the new king. It sat there because Saul didn't want it. David, the new king, wants God's presence in the center of God's people. Very important to this whole passage. He desires the ark. He desires God. And I think there's actually a word there to, I'm gonna say the evangelical church. You see, we, a couple of weeks ago, looked at 2 Samuel 5. That was all about God saving the Israelites from their enemies. And y'all, we tend to get really hype about invoking God to help us win the latest cultural battle of the moment. We get our adrenaline pumping for a war against the culture But what motivates David is not who was against them, but who was among them. And what should motivate our worship and our zeal is not who is against us, but who is among us. We worship God for God. We serve God for God. But keep going. Verse three, they set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, look at this, sons of Abinadab, which means they were familiar with this ark. It had been in their home for a while. They had gotten, well, we're going to see too familiar with it. They were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ohio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, that's electric guitar, harps, tambourines, sistrums, that's a Hammond B3 organ, right, and symbols. They were having a worship service. I want you to see the thread. David and all of Israel, 30,000 were dancing before the Lord. Dancing before the Lord. That's the, it's repeated several times intentionally. David the king was dancing, verse six. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the Ark of God. And David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah. I know he's a super creative guy, Um, still name that today. Man, this is, I love how relatable the Bible is. I told you guys this before. It's the most relatable book ever written. How many of you can relate to David's reaction? David looks at God and says, what? He was just trying to help. Come on. And the reason I ask if you relate to David like that is that sometimes people encounter truths about God in the Bible and they feel offended and they assume that we are the first generation in history to be enlightened enough to be offended by the Bible. The Bible's been offending people for all ages, including its authors. I'll never forget Bart Ehrman, professor of religious studies at UNC, saying to us in his New Testament class that at the heart of why he didn't believe in Christianity, it was not all the supposed, you know, contradictions that he had uncovered in the text. At the heart of it was his inability to square how a good and loving God could allow evil in the world. So he surmised he just didn't like the God of the Bible. He was offended by him. And what I love is the Bible goes, yeah, I get that. <laughs> David gets this. David was angry at God because of what he perceived as unnecessarily harsh judgment. You and I are not the first ones if you're having that reaction to have that. The point is, lovingly going to say, don't be an ignorant, arrogant American who assumes you're the first person in history to be offended by the Bible just because you got a college degree. You say, well, how's that supposed to help? Well, because you're gonna see in David and you're gonna see the church throughout history has found greater, more compelling reasons to believe in the face of those realities. And there's an explanation for it. And you need a faith that doesn't ignore pain, but instead makes room for it and has an explanation for it. Verse nine, David feared the Lord and said, how can the ark of God ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath, who had to be like, what? What are you bringing that here? You know? David, so upset, confused, and afraid, he just sends it to another guy's house. Like I said, we can relate when we read this and say the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. I'm sure to tell you the punishment is not more severe than the crime. A couple of things to show you that. First, listen, God had given specific instructions on how the ark was to be carried. You look at this, the Israelites throw it on a cart the same way the Philistines did. The ark was not meant to be carried on a cart. It was supposed to be carried on certain poles in certain ways by men in the center of the caravan, right? That should be, by the way, a big old clue that God has given instructions on how this is to be carried and on how he is to be worshiped. That should give you a little bit of clue on how God feels about the whole, I'm gonna worship God in my own way attitude. No, you do not get to decide how God is worshiped. God decides how God is worshiped and he tells you, and both David David, and Uzzah are choosing their way instead of God's way. Like David set this up. He's the one. threw it on the cart. Secondly, even more importantly here, Uzzah's big problem is that he's unaware of his own sinfulness. He sees the ark falling, the ark that carries the presence of God and thinks he's got to keep it from hitting the dirty, defiled ground. And the mistake here is thinking that his hands are less dirty and defiled than the ground. But in reality, they are far more defiled. The ground has never sinned against God. But Uzzah, like all people, certainly has. And it is the sin of man that would defile the ark, not the amoral dirt on the ground. Uzzah doesn't recognize that and he dies. David doesn't recognize that, he gets angry. here's what I'll say, y'all. It is our failure to understand God's judgment it's rooted in a failure to see the wickedness of our own sin. Our failure to understand God's judgment is rooted in our failure to see the wickedness of our own sin. Now let's talk about what that means for us today. Cause I know nobody has seen the Ark in 2,500 years, aside from Harrison Ford, right? Nobody else has seen this thing. One of the reactions people have to Christianity is, you know, like I said with Dr. Ehrman, why would a loving God send people to hell? Eternity apart from God, the cost of one sin Seems too severe. Well, first, just by saying that, you have decided apparently you, not God, need to be the standard bearer for who gets in and out of heaven. So where's the line? Good people, what makes someone good? What makes a deed ontologically good? Quickly, what you'll see is that your standard of good is relevant, or excuse me, relative, not relative, relative, and therefore, because it is relative, it's pretty much irrelevant to all of us. We need a universal standard to judge us by. And that's what the God of the universe gives. But also when we say punishment is too severe, we just don't see how wicked our sin is or how holy God is. Sin is outright defiance against God's authority. It's saying, I don't want God. I choose me over God, period. And that's cosmic treason. And you're like, Yeah, but is it really that bad? Yes. Let me say it this way. You think about this one sin, Costing you everything. If I were to offer you a glass of Courtney's delicious, that's my wife, Courtney, delicious sweet tea. That girl, born and raised in the South, several generations of sweet tea makers. She's got this thing down, okay? If I were to offer you that, but I was to say, listen, this thing is 97% sweet tea. You know what? 99% sweet tea, only 1% urine in this glass. Hey, only 1%, that's like an A plus in terms of the content, mostly sweet tea. What would you say? Say the whole cup, unless you're some middle schooler, which look, I'm not talking to you, okay? But most of us what we would say, say the whole cup is defiled. That's what your sin does to you. And God will not be defiled by your sin because he is perfectly holy in nature. He cannot be. So he wipes out anything unholy from his presence. Oh, sometimes we talk about like, God can't be in the presence of sin. It's, sin can't be in the presence of God. At the end of Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. He'll burn it up. Or in the case of Uzzah. Uzzah will drop dead before him. Your only hope for being in God's presence, get this, and not dying is if your sin can somehow be taken away from you. Then like Adam and Eve before the fall, you would actually be able to walk with God and not die, but instead be in his presence. We're going to get there. Got to keep going. Verse 12. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David's had a change of heart. He's come back to the Lord. He's worshiping God, God's way. And the ark is being carried. See that? All poles is instructed sacrifices for sin are being made as instructed. And by the way, they would stop this whole sacrifice thing. They would kill the animal. And then they would sprinkle the blood. David would onto the mercy seat. The blood was substitutionary. Their sin deserved death. We covered that, but because God loved his people, he made a way for their sin to be paid for. And miraculously they could still be alive. He said, you can put an animal's blood to substitute for your own and you can be in my presence now. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat because in this act, the reason it's called the mercy seat is because in this act where you sprinkle that blood, you are receiving my mercy. And this is where I want you to hear the gospel. First John 2, 2. He, Jesus himself, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atoning means he pays for it and it, cleanses us and not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. Because Jesus, get this, was perfect, was without sin. That means he could be a substitute. He didn't have to die for his own sins. He could die for somebody else's. And because he was God, this is why we believe he was fully man, fully God. Because he was God, he was powerful enough. His blood was powerful enough to be the substitute for the whole world, for all who would believe, for you and me. The wage of sin is death, but Romans six twenty three, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The way um, one of my favorite, very influential pastors of my life, Pastor Tim Keller, you've heard me quote him several times, passed away a couple of days ago. Um, the way he said, he said, listen, though your sin is more wicked than you ever realize, the mercy of God on your behalf is greater than you can ever imagine. And he accepts, God accepts Christ's payment on our behalf if you'll repent and believe, not if you'll work harder to clean yourself up and believe. And When you understand the gospel, how wicked you are and how holy God is, that'll lead your heart to reverence. Like that, That's where reverence comes from in worship. Man, I am so wicked. God is so holy. And at the same time, when you see the sacrifice of Jesus and that you are reconciled to God only through what he did, that'll lead you to humility. There's no room for pride because you didn't do anything. And what will be left is reverence that's undignified in its expression. It's humble. This great love will cause us to worship God With reverence, you'll be in awe and wonder and thankfulness, so much so that your heart might burst open and you just might well react like David right here. Verse 14, David was dancing with all his might. With all his might, before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod, he and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of a ram's horn 30,000, I want you to see a couple of things in verse 14, dancing with all his might. The response to the presence of God, the forgiveness of the mercy seat is to leave it all. As my coaches say, leave it all on the field. He's sweating. Thankfully, he doesn't say he dances with great rhythm. So don't worry, right? It's just with all his might, with everything he has. Secondly, it says he's dancing with all his might. Before the Lord. That's his audience. So important, guys. It'll come up again in a moment. And then he's wearing a linen ephod. That is actually the priest's undergarment that we're going to, it's going to come up next week in Second Samuel 7. But right now, I want you to see basically he's wearing underwear, okay? Dancing with all his might before the Lord in his underwear. And then the chapter shifts to David's marriage, verse 16. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and, da- leaping and dancing. Man, I, I love it, man. I don't know if this was a box jump kind of thing or just like one of the Michael Jordan, like look like, I don't know what was going on, leaping and dancing. And she despised him in her heart. Let's skip down to verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter, Michael, came out to meet him. That's the second time she's been referred to as Saul's daughter, not David's wife. That's because author's drawn us to something. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. This is the Bible showing you that sarcasm and marital conflict has existed for all time, okay? It's always been there. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. Saul's daughter is concerned with appearances, just like Saul, concerned with image, what the world around him thought, what was going on with others. Michael, however, seems to have forgotten that she was not only talking to the king of Israel, but to the king of trash talk. Look at what he says next. David replied to Michael, it was before the Lord. Who chose me over your father and his whole family? Brought her daddy into this, right? Man, to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel, I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. I got moves you ain't even seen yet. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And if chapter finishes, Saul's daughter Michael had no child to the day of her death. I will dance before the Lord. I will humble and dishonor myself even more. I want this explanation to be what God uses to search your own heart. Listen, y'all, David's first audience in worship was God. That's what it was. Some of you need to do some soul searching about this. Is this your heart in your worship? And by the way, again, I'll reinforce, worship isn't confined to this corporate Sunday gathering. Worship simply put is your response to the gospel in every area of life that's Romans 12:1 in view of God's mercies let us offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God this is your act of worship how you spend your money is worship how you spend your time is worship how you treat your kids your spouse strangers employees employers it's all worship so what is the way you live your life or better? The way you worship with your life, what is that saying you believe about God right now? Again y'all, this I'm always saying this to you in love as one who has gone through and continues to go through conviction over this. And because this text is telling us about a corporate worship gathering, I got no problem saying to you when you come to gather with the saints, who's your audience? what your participation in corporate worship, what's it saying you believe about God? David is saying, I'm not going to be like Saul. My audience is God. And so I'm dancing with everything I got. It's not 50%. This isn't practice, spring training. No, I'm giving it everything I got. Now let me talk real practically here because there's application no matter what background you come from. And by the way, let me say, no one's application today is to strip down to their underwear and start dancing, okay? That's not... Might get arrested for that. That's not the thing, okay? Let's take that off the table. What's our application? Here we go. Our corporate worship should physically and visibly demonstrate how much we revere God and are grateful to God. It should just match our hearts. Mo Pastor, is he here last week, used to say, what if the reason our community out there doesn't take God more seriously is the result of the way we worship in here? So let me answer a couple common objections to this. And we'll spend some time putting this into practice. One, I hear people say, I don't have an expressive personality. That's just not my personality. Listen, I do think you should be genuine, okay? That you, be genuine to yourself. I told you, this is not about behavior modifications, it's about a heart change. Some people come from more subdued upbringings, backgrounds, and some people are just more chill in their personality. And I want to say, praise God for you. We need you to balance out all the dramatic people that the family of God has, okay? that's it's good. And I tend to, like I say, I do tend to be a little bit more in that camp anyways. Here's what I'll say first, maybe a little test for you. If I were to come up to you, give you a million dollars and you were to somberly with your head down say, thank you, praise God. So grateful. If that's you, then that posture in worship's probably genuine. But if you would get hype about it or hype, about anything else, like the winning field goal, of the football team you don't even play on, then maybe you don't value your salvation as much as you think you do. I mean, Matthew 26, y'all, the woman with the alabaster flask, she goes and pours it all on Jesus's feet just because he's worthy. She debases herself before the Lord. There's no dignity in it, except that he's worthy. She gives it all to him. Nothing to do with, we don't read about it, you know, her being an Enneagram, such and such, she went and did this. No, he was worthy. He was her only audience. And that's what she did. Now, some would say, listen, I believe somber reflection is just, that's what's appropriate in corporate worship. To which I say, me too. There are times when we need to kneel down in quiet reverence. We need Psalm 46. We need to be still and just know that he is God. And I, I feel that even in our own worship like man, I've really been convicted this week of needing more spaces like that. But that's not the singular description of worship in the Bible. Sometimes we need to weep over our sin. Sometimes we need to take notes because we're learning, right? Sometimes you need to clap your hands and shout amen and stand and sing and give praise because God has saved you from sin and death. He can cry glory, hallelujah, he saved me. And again, this, I'm just giving you what the Lord has done in my own life. Some of you need to repent of the pride and dignity you carry into worship. Like I said to you men who think showing emotion is girly, all I can say is come back to me after you've killed lions and bears with your own hands. Go take a look at David. You're not as manly as him, but also your refusal to show emotion might actually <laughs> it's a problem. And it might be doing damage in other areas of your life that you're not aware of. Um, again, big growth area for me. You need to get more comfortable expressing emotion in a healthy way, or we're all gonna deal with the fallout of you bottling stuff up and then expressing it in an unhealthy way. Start with your worship of God. What will your version of worshiping God with all your might look like? <laughs> I'm excited. Look, we say all the time, we're gonna help you take your next step. So it's just the next step. <laughs> Again, I, corporate worship, I came from the frozen chosen background, okay? And then we never moved at all, right? Um, and it's taken me years to move to a place where I feel like my body matches my heart. And that's what I'm talking about here. And it should match by the way, the physical, uh, talking about corporate worship, that should match the way you worship God with the rest of your life. And you're like, I got no rhythm. I can't do that. Thanks be to God. Some of our brothers and sisters do. They lead us in worship so that we can just be free. All right. And most importantly, God don't care. Okay. He created you that way. He loves it when you go full out. And others will say, man, I'm new to Christianity. So I don't know. I don't know if I know enough. I'm just still kind of new. <laughs> Listen, I was thinking about that terrible fire in South, uh, South Park this week. Tragic. A couple people lost their lives. But thanks to some very brave quick work by our firefighters, 15 people were saved. And if that was one of you, would you need to know anything else about that firefighter who saved you in order to express gratitude? No, because what he did makes you thankful. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you will worship him. But all you need to worship him is the news of your salvation. And again, like I say, we're about the heart here, not the behavior change happens over time. I knew some Christians who grew up in really, I know some Christians grew up in really expressive settings for a long time, and they felt hypocritical for a long time because the expression was just an emotional facade that didn't match up with the rest of their lives. And finally, they started to learn the truths of the gospel and their heart became filled with reverence for this holy God and love for his mercy and everything changed for them. Even their worship practice was, they would say, redeemed. Same for those I know with less expressive backgrounds, started to worship with more freedom. Y'all, you're more wicked than you ever realized. God is more holy than you know. You are more loved than you ever thought possible. And he has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. Keep the gospel at the center and you'll worship God with undignified reverence, which will be for his glory and your good. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for, thank you for creating us to know you and to walk with you. What a gift. You've created us for relationship with yourself. Thank you that you revealed yourself to be holy and have shown us that. Thank you for your, Great love that leaves no room for pride. Our salvation is all your work and not ours. So we say, thank you. Thank you, Father. I want to give you a chance, both of our campuses, if you've never responded to the gospel and received God as your savior to do so now. It's not about what you do for him, but what he's done for you. Say, God, I... I believe I am a sinner. I hear about the wickedness of my own sin. That that registers with me. And I can't save myself. I've been trying, can't do it. I need you, Father. I believe Jesus, his blood went on the mercy seat for me so that I can be redeemed, my sins can be paid for, and I can walk with you. Thank you, God for saving me. You Christians, would you take some time maybe to repent of where you have brought your pride to the Lord, instead of just your humble thankful heart. Lord, help me to worship you in a way that matches and is worthy of what you've done and who you are. God, show us the freedom and joy of a life of worship. Not just consumers of your grace, but as we receive it, we respond back to you and give you everything. And in our worship of you, we find joy and freedom. Would that be true? Not just of our gatherings on Sunday, but would that be something just sparks us? to go and live that life and find joy and freedom in it. Pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen.